0: Hi, I'm Dr. Avanti Kumar Singh. In over 20 years of practicing both Western medicine and Eastern healing traditions, the most important thing that I've learned is that healing is a journey we take together. So on this podcast, I'll be demystifying Ayurveda and other integrated medicine, showing how these simple ancient practices are the keys to unlocking a healthy modern life. We are all healing catalysts because healing starts within. It starts with you and it starts right now. This is a Soulfire production. Episode number 49. Well, hello, hello, my beautiful friends. Welcome back to the Healing Catalyst Podcast. And if you're new here, welcome. I'm Avanti and I'm so thrilled that you're spending some time with me today. Can you believe it's May, a new month, which means a new intention around here? which this month is Plants as Medicine. In addition, it's Mental Health Awareness Month. And so the topics and guests this month will be centered around both of these topics, Plants as Medicine to Support Mental Health. And the conversations this month are with the leading experts in the fields of integrative psychiatry, nutritional psychiatry, and culinary medicine. So you don't want to miss a single one. Now, today we're diving into psychedelic plant medicine and Sacred Medicine, with part one of a two-part series with two of my brilliant colleagues and dear friends, Dr. Ellen Bora and Dr. Thanmeet Sethi, who were both on the podcast last year. We've linked those episodes in the show notes because if you haven't heard those episodes, you definitely want to go back and listen. A little bit about my two guests. Dr. Ellen Bora is a board-certified psychiatrist, medical acupuncturist, and yoga teacher. She takes a functional medicine approach to mental health, considering the whole person and addressing imbalance at the root rather than reflexively prescribing medication. She focuses on everything from physical health, sleep, nutrition, digestion, thought patterns, relationships, and community to our connection with nature and creativity and the ways that we find meaning in life. Her first book, The Anatomy of Anxiety, has been a bestseller since it was published in March, and I recommend it to every single one of you. It's literally a paradigm shift in how we think about anxiety. My second guest is Dr. Thanmeet Sethi, who is an integrative physician, speaker, and educator who has worked with thousands of patients for over a decade in a large urban hospital, serving as an advocate for marginalized populations, women, and children. What she's discovered is that while illness may appear in many forms, it almost always stems from a common source, a disconnection from spirituality, and a disconnection from healthy foods that feed your body, mind, and soul. She's witnessed transformative results in her patients from practicing gratitude, prayer, breathing, cooking, and mindful eating. Dr. Sethi is also a TEDx speaker and is currently writing her first book, which will be published later this year. In this amazing conversation with Ellen and Thanmeath, we discuss everything that you want to know about psychedelic medicine. In part one today, we discuss what they are, how they work, the history of psychedelic plant medicine in indigenous cultures, and the importance of community and ritual in healing. In part two next week, we discuss what a sacred medicine ceremony is and what to expect if you participate in ceremony, why ritual is medicine, and what to look for when searching for a psychedelic or plant medicine practitioner. And honestly, more than anything else, both Ellen and Thanmeet share their wisdom and knowledge from a place not just of years of training and education and expertise as doctors, but from a deep place of humanity and love. This is a beautiful conversation between three friends and colleagues about their personal and professional journeys with sacred plant medicine, one that I hope serves you on your healing journeys as well. Well, Thanmeath and Alan, thank you so much for joining me today. I know it took mountains to get all our schedules coordinated. So I really appreciate both of you being here. And really quick for the listeners, both Thanmeeth and Ellen were on my podcast at different times last year. And they both actually had talked a little bit about psychedelics and plant medicine. And I had said to each of them individually, well, we have to do another podcast to talk about that. Little did I know that a few weeks after I talked to Thanmeeth, that both Ellen and Thanmeeth would meet each other. And they were texting me saying, look who I met. And I knew I had to have them both on together. So I'm so excited. And one other thing for the listeners, this conversation is going to get split into two parts. So make sure you listen to part one and part two. So we're going to jump into everything plant medicine. So thank you for being here, you guys. Thank you for having us. This is an honor. Oh, I'm so excited. So let's just jump in. You know, I have gotten so many questions from people about psychedelics, about plant medicine and trying to understand, you know, is it for me? Is it not for me? And I think the biggest question, maybe it's gotten to be even more of a popular question, probably over the past two years (laughs) with everything with the pandemic, it's been in the media a lot. There's all these wellness companies popping up, you know, talking about psychedelic medicine. It's, you know, in the Wall Street Journal, it's in the New York Times, it's everywhere. So I think there's a lot of questions and confusion about, you know, what is it? Does it, would it work for me? So let's kind of jump in there. So maybe the place to start is asking both of you, what are psychedelic medications or medicines? How do, you know, what are they?
1: Let's start there. So I'll take a first stab at this. Um, It's a heterogeneous category of medications and it's, um, it can be many things. We're in a moment right now where it's a little bit of a, you know, it when you see it but there are a lot of different approaches. The way I think about it is that, you know, I think about classical psychedelics. We have things like um, the ones that are being most closely studied for therapeutic uses are things like psilocybin um, and ketamine, less so being studied, but ayahuasca is certainly in the mix. And then there's a lot of research around MDMA, which would typically not be considered a classic psychedelic, but is sort of grouped together in this new renaissance of taking a different approach to mental health.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: Yeah. And and I think, Ellen, just to build on that, because I I love that intro to it really is so hard to put them all together for um, in one category. But I think that really, in the end, we could think as well about these categories of compounds being plants of the of way of really shifting consciousness is why I think they all have come into such focus. And so their, their mechanisms of action are different. Their effects are somewhat the same, some different, you know, I mean, there's lots of overlap, but in the end, what we're talking about are plant medicines, even the ones that are synthesized originally came from an honoring of plants and ancestral indigenous knowledge of those plants. And so what we're really looking at are a classes of compounds and plants that are really being shown to in science for what they have been doing for millennia, which is really shifting consciousness and helping us look inward so that we can look outward with more connection and openness.
1: Mm -hmm. So beautifully said. I want to just jump and play off of that a little bit. Yes, please. um, I think that that really is the commonality and in a way, you know, you said it so well And the meat, there's, there's ways that they work similarly um, and there's ways that they all work differently. And there's many of them have an impact on our serotonin signaling. And many of them are active at the 5-HT2A receptor in the brain. So it has a little bit of an echo of what we're working with already with our you know, psych, you know psychotropic medication. And many of them are actually anti-inflammatory, which is interesting and plays off of a more cutting edge understanding of how mental health and really our physical health in general uh, is so influenced by levels of systemic inflammation. And then there's the neuroplasticity idea of increased secretion of BDNF or brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which helps our brains become more you know it, it promotes neurogenesis and neuroplasticity which to translate that we can grow and change and adapt but to circle back around to what you said so well that it's all about shifting consciousness mm-hmm. what i find most exciting and promising about this category of psychedelic and psychedelic adjacent medicines is that the best way i heard it described was reverse PTSD. And this pertains to the mystical experience hypothesis, where the more we actually have a peak mystical experience in a psychedelic ceremony, the more we feel an experience that we would describe as awe, um, then that is actually correlative with the positive effect and, and how enduring the positive effect is. So the efficacy has to do with not just whatever is biochemically occurring in the ceremony but it has something to do with the experience itself and how we subjectively experience it and how much it takes us to a place of spirituality and awe. And that's what's so interesting because that's a very different way of approaching mental health than what we currently have with our pharmaceutical products.
0: Yeah. So it's this beautiful integration of the actual, uh, physiological effects of these medications or medicines on the body and at the neurotransmitter ends and, and how, how it's affecting those neurotransmitters and the reuptake or, you know, letting them be there, etc. But it's also what you're talking about this other experience that is beyond that, which is the combination almost, it seems like is what you guys are saying is, is what
2: sort of is the magic in them. In a way. Yeah. And I think what Ellen, what you're describing so succinctly, is the exciting part to me too about these medicines, is that um it really feels like, at least in my, you know, short medical career quarter century, which is short in the long term, right? <laughs> it feels like the first time I've ever seen us not only Avanti, even further than that there's Something biochemically happening and something mystical happening, but how are those playing into each other? Mm -hmm. Right. And that to me is the whole new world of what I was exposed to in medical school, where if you had a mystical experience and that feeling of awe and something greater and vaster than what you know to be this universe, it was like a woo-woo thing that you had on the side.
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And now what we're exploring is that you know, you can put the woo-woo aside and you can see that the biochemistry is actually linked to our spirituality. And and we don't understand it yet. I'm I'm not saying we have a sense of what that means, but for me, it feels like a way of bringing together that the way we connect to a vast, uh, greater sense of this world actually has to do with how we also are processing what's happening in our brain and our chemistry. And somehow those are linked, even though we don't understand it. So it's amazing, really. Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating. So let's, before we get into the ceremony,
0: let's just rewind for a second. There's so many questions I have. I'm like scribbling on my paper here. Let's just go back to, I know that there's different, different mechanisms of action, but maybe you guys could go through sort of how do these different ones work? How do they actually, what's the mechanism of how they work? And maybe we could go through a few of the, the more popular ones that people are hearing about so that they understand the biochemistry before we jump into the mystical and the spiritual.
1: Yeah, I, I think I'll. you'll see me quickly push up against the limitations of my expertise on this. I've mm-hmm. sort of, I haven't really broken it down in that way, but when I look at the research, I'll see a lot of the research on ketamine seems mm-hmm. to be focused on the BDNF neuroplastic function. So, there's a lot of this idea of, especially if you do this kind of build up of four treatments and then, and they're sort of spaced apart in an intentional way. And then there's this window of neuroplasticity, which I find as a therapist to be really exciting because then I sort of catch my patients as they come out of the window. They're in the window, they come out of their ketamine treatments and let's move, you know, let's really capitalize on this opportunity to rewire, to uh, reframe and to really shake everything up and let things be up for grabs. I think ketamine also has this other interesting um, way that it's really potently healing is that it is a dissociative. And I find that all of these different medicines have different ways of helping people work through trauma. And the dissociative quality is interesting in that the same way someone might approach a traumatic memory, and then it's almost like they instantly go into a stress response, which is not a very fruitful state of mind to heal or, or change our, our, our thoughts. You know, it's the same as if you're in a fight with your partner and it's like, okay, we're having a, a supportive, sympathetic conversation. We're trying to work through a problem and then somebody trips a wire and one person is triggered and mm-hmm. then nothing fruitful happens anymore. We just become sort of animals up against right. the wall and we were triggered into a fight or a flight or a tend and befriend or a freeze response. And so, a lot of my patients, when we come up against something traumatic from their past, their body goes into a stress response, and we can't really do much change. But when they're under, when they're in ceremony with ketamine, and they're dissociated from their body, it's almost like that stress response doesn't um, grip them, and so they can really be with the thoughts, be with the memory, and and look at it without. Getting overwhelmed by the stress response without it shutting down fruitful thoughts. And so that's one interesting thing with ketamine. And I'll pause for a moment, but there's things to be said about psilocybin and how it's active at increasing global connectivity, which we don't know what that means, but it's interesting mm-hmm. to sort of see the scans of brains under psilocybin treatment and how active and interconnected it is. Um, and we can talk about the default mode network as well. But I'm yeah. curious to hear what Tamit wants yeah. to add in
2: first. Oh, I mean, I think that was a good summary. I think, I I, f- I feel like that the brain scans really do, are really fascinating. So Ellen referred to some of the biochemistry. And then when we think about psilocybin, we're thinking more about that serotonergic receptor biochemistry. Mm-hmm. But when we look at those scans, you know, what they really see is that they turn down that self-referential network, the way that we really judge ourselves but also look at ourselves in the world and we're able to put ourselves in the world in a in a different way we're able to connect to others in some way i don't quite understand this mdma for instance has been shown to turn down attention switching and really give us more attention outward and in the way that we can really open to the world and feel less like ellen was saying fearful I don't quite understand that, but it's amazing research that's emerging. And then we really, when we think about it in the terms that most people are used to, we really think of that amygdala and what people think of as the fear center. Although Mm -hmm. I would call it an emotional center, not a fear center, but I feel like that's how it's, brought out in the, I don't know if you'd agree with that, Ellen, my psychiatry expert. But in the amygdala, it seems that both MDMA and psilocybin can actually ramp down the difficult emotions that, like Ellen was saying, can get in the way of processing that trauma and also seeing things with that more more clarity. And then MDMA also has been shown to increase oxytocin and prolactin, so those connectivity hormones the ways that we bond and connect, not only to others, but to ourselves, Yes. that we actually see ourselves as um, more human and, and to be accepted. Um, so that self-love and acceptance is really big when we're working through those traumas. So that's just a little more on that. Yeah.
0: And what I'll just add to that is my own personal experience, because I, I think I've shared this before in the podcast, I've actually done ketamine treatments. And what both of you are describing is actually putting into words what I've experienced through my ketamine treatments. I did the, you know, a series of six treatments, um, over two and a half weeks about was the protocol when I did it about two years ago, um, actually a year and a half ago. And I will say that the, the experience that I had was all of the things you said, I had a decreased sort of stress response. I mean, I could, I remember things coming up during the treatments, probably about three treatments in. And all of a sudden I didn't have this fear response or this, you know, um, excited sort of stress response to it. I sort of was like, Oh, okay. And I just was able to be with it. Um, and I think what you were saying also is that for me, the experience was also a lot more about seeing myself differently. Um, and I, you know, I don't know, it's hard to put it into words when you've been through it, but you guys have done a pretty good job of it for me. So thank you for that. But um, yeah, that's been my experience uh, of ketamine.
1: So I think that connects to this default mode network conversation that, yes, that we should please. have, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, I'm, I'm so curious to hear what Amit has to say also about the, the DMN, but it's, it's really interesting. It's this part of our brain geographically, where we hang out when we're not actively engaged in a task. And um, what I find, what, or where, what I've decided, how I make sense of the default mode network is when we're not actively engaged in a task and when we're not really present in the present moment, what happens is our mind, we, we have our habits. Many of us start future tripping and being anxiously anticipating something in the future, or we dwell on the past and we sort of get consumed with um, regret, um, grief about the past. And so those tendencies, they seem to also overlap with our understanding of our, our limited sense, our narrow definition of the self that I am separate from others. And these are my problems. This is what I'm worried about in the future and what I'm not happy about from the past. And when the default node mode network is quieted in a psychedelic ceremony, not only are we better able to be present, but it almost dissolves this narrow definition of the self. And we start to feel an expansion. It's almost like if you ask someone in ceremony, what are the boundaries of of you? And rather than like me or me, my family, it sort of becomes like, well, I feel pretty connected with, all of New York city, wait, all of humanity, wait, all (laughs) sentient beings, wait, the whole earth, wait, the universe. And you start to feel really expansive. And man, is that the self to what ails us as a society right now? Like we need to start recognizing how interconnected we are, how we're not separate from others suffering, how, you know, it, it motivates pro-social behavior of looking out for others. Um, almost from a selfish stance, but who cares whatever it takes, but it's almost like to start to feel interconnected. We get a little bit less myopically bogged down in our own problems, but we also start to feel really engaged with, um, like we want to step up and take purposeful action in a way that pertains to a much broader definition of what matters to us.
2: I I think that might be the best description I've heard of the default mode network Ellen. Yeah. It's it's often presented as kind of thinking about the ruminating mind and I think the way that Ellen expanded on that is much more whole than just that that I just love that description. And and I think that that ego it's, it's ego dissolution or a sense of self dissolving however you want to think about it is Really what, if we think about why these medicines, these plants are so important, it's that, you know, that is really why we have survived. Our ancestors had experiences with these plants and without these plants. Um, you don't have to have a psychedelic ceremony to have an experience of awe and vastness. But really, the research on awe alone is actually amazing and and really growing. But what we find is that people, our ancestors really had these experiences and then really had more curiosity about what this world was about and how to tend to all of the earth and all of us the way that Ellen was describing. And so, you know, we could use a lot more of that now. I agree. And when I think about it like that, I just think that the default mode network quieter it is the more we're able to see things with clarity and love, you know, really. But I don't, I, I feel like that description really encapsulates what they're looking at in the studies and what we've seen also in studies of meditation as well. Yeah. Really commonalities around brain scans and default mode networks. So just these different ways to come at widening our lens and expanding our sense of what we are and what this world can be
1: right and me you just clicked something into place for me hmm. that has never i've never these two synapses have never connected in my brain before <laughs> this moment but basically <laughs> you know i i have this book about anxiety coming out right now so i've been doing a lot of talking about anxiety and the yeah. question of you know anxiety boils down to fear it boils down to survival and and i haven't had a good answer for this but if you'll allow me to kind of think out loud about something you just made me understand in a new way. Yes. I think that, you know, that that saying, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go with others Mm -hmm. and anxiety and fear does boil down to, um, how we've survived, you know, it's anticipating potential negative consequences as they pertain to our, you know, our own ego, our own self, and maybe our immediate surroundings, but in a way what's happening in the world right now. So here's how I'm thinking about it. On the proverbial savanna of evolution, human beings, we were never the strongest. We were never the fastest. Mm -hmm. The reason we survived was because we were the ones who figured out how to cooperate. And that's part of why we need community to feel safe, to feel calm. Um, But I think it pertains to these two different kinds of survival that our anxiety pertains to. There's survival of the individual, but then there is survival of the collective. And that's also in our hardwiring. And I think part of what we can achieve when more of us work within pathogens, find a place of being undefended, find a place of quieting the default mode network and dissolving that narrow sense of the self is that we're leaning more into not just survival of the individual, but survival of the collective.
0: Whoa, need to take that in.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, it actually... Ellen, I could talk about this for hours, but the reason that I've been thinking so much about this is it's actually in the book that I'm writing because I have been thinking about this idea and of justice in our body, but then how that contributes to justice in the world. And that's how this really came together for me in the sense of really how have we contributed to a collective for millennia and how do we need to remember and honor that so that we can actually go forward instead of what feels like a time where we may be going backward. So I really love the way you put those synapses together because it's really reaffirming for me what I've been really writing about and and just muddling with.
1: It's almost like we're being asked to go far, or we finally have an opportunity to go far, or in a way we have no choice because we've, as you put it, like we're hyper-polarized. There's so much excavation of all of the injustices and all of the wrongs and harm done that we're finally staring at how far we have to go. And so we can't just go fast alone. We need to find these inroads to going far
2: yeah, in company. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if if you either of you have read a, the overview effect or writings about that, but it's really these... Sort of compilation of writings from astronauts who've been in space and seeing the Earth from space, and the the quotes and writings are actually mind-boggling. But what you really find is that seeing that this is actually this encapsulates a psychedelic experience so much for me is that one astronaut um, actually said that after seeing the Earth from so far away and in its wholeness and in its fragility and beauty. I could not think of anything but the fact that we must tend to it with everything we have. You know, and I actually get a chill when I, mm-hmm. that isn't an exact quote, but that's a summary of what this astronaut said. And psychedelic plants allow us that zoom out overview effect where we see whatever the earth is the metaphor for whatever it is where man, sometimes we see the earth, mm-hmm. but sometimes we see just our life from an overview. That allows us to understand that actually what we need to do is care for this in a different way that we are so much more a part of it and it is bigger than we understood to, you know, before we did this. So, yeah, I think it's all wrapped into that awe and that feeling of oneness and vastness So both at the same time.
1: Yeah. Love that imagery that it's a spiritual experience to look down at the earth from space. And I, it, what I'm picturing is almost like looking at the earth, the way you would look at a newborn baby Yeah. and you Mm. sort of see it in its divinity and its vulnerability all at once. And you're like, why wouldn't I completely reorganize my brain and my life in order to keep this safe and help it thrive? Yes. That's beautiful.
0: You know, the thing that was coming up for me is this idea in our spiritual traditions, at least, you know, um, from South Asia, is this idea of not being separate from whatever you believe is God, the one, the Almighty, right? And so maybe the separation is also about don't be separate from other people, which I think I understood that, but this is bringing it to another understanding that, you know, that our, our ancestors for millennia have understood this in a very, very real way that there should be no separateness. It's sort of that we need each other to survive, to overcome the fear, the anxiety, the the depressive thoughts, whatever it is, basically to overcome sort of the the illusions of the mind, right? That we can do that by being in community with others and being with others. So Um, there's a lot to think about there. Wow. So let's jump back into, you know, this idea of this mystical, the mystical experience that you were sort of describing Ellen and the Meath as well. You know, these plant medicines have been used for millennia by, you know, so many indigenous cultures and traditions and their healing ceremonies. And so Let's talk about the ceremony around them because I know both of you know quite a bit about that. I think it's really important to honor that and to understand the ceremony of these plant medicines and why they're so sacred.
2: So, wherever you guys want to start on that, I think this, there's so many layers to this. So I think I'll just start, and I think we can build on it, Ellen, together. But for me, ceremony is medicine, and so mm. and that, that comes not only from my culture and you know, Ayurveda, but also from what I've learned in Western training, which is the lack thereof, and how when we bring back and restore the um, the concept and the ritual of ceremony, how that is healing in and of itself. And so I ask anyone who's interested in these plants and learning more to really think about the ceremony of medicine and healing and how that can be undertaken in a way that has reciprocity with the earth and the land and those cultures that brought us this wisdom. And I and I really can't start a discussion about ceremony without honoring that without that reciprocity, we will just become reductionist of bringing these back into the newest SSRI or, you know, the newest medication we can offer. And, and, and I mean this from a way of um, even when I give my patients, which it is less often, but I do give my patients SSRIs. When I do use them, I actually use them ceremonially. So I offer them to patients, you know, I don't have, I'm old enough to have had written prescriptions and now we don't, but I actually offer it to them as a part of the whole of what can be a tool in this healing process and what it could hope to unlock so that they can do this work that their body is offering them the, the signal or the message to work on. And I think that the way that these plants have been ceremonially used for millennia offers us the chance to reconnect with how all ceremony is medicine and all medicine can be ceremonial because all of it can be honoring the way that we ingest, receive it in the body, the way that we have gratitude and appreciation for care, modern and ancient, you know, and so there's just so much there around ceremony. Um, I'll just stop there and let Ellen go and then we can keep building. But I feel like there's just so much, you know, we're, I'm in the middle, I'm on a team doing a study at the University of Washington. And um, we talked so much about how we wanted to how did we want to ceremonially offer this in a way that could be different, but yet not feel not authentic or appropriating of any one plant um, culture, any ceremonial culture. And so just honoring that these these have been used differently and we can be different with them and that can be part of our healing. And I think that you know we need that in, in Western medicine for sure. Love that. I feel like I'm going to need a massage
1: after this conversation. Cause I'm nodding along so vigorously. <laughs> you know,
0: just so I know. Much. I wish, I wish the listeners could see the three of us just like, yes,
1: yes, yes. So this is just a bath in this circle of uh, wise goddesses. So yeah, I agree completely. And I think this is, this is missing from Western medicine. It's missing from Western culture writ large. We, we, we are missing ritual. And in a way we haven't even talked yet about the caveats of you know who shouldn't be using this medicine you know Mm -hmm. contraindications and set and setting it's all important but i think in a way at the end of this if someone feels motivated um but psychedelics are not the appropriate treatment for you ritual is you know ceremony is and it's part and parcel for the ways in which this medicine is sacred and therapeutic and i think that um, I, this is somewhat of a personal story, but I remember the first time I was, was in Brazil having my first experience with ayahuasca. And it was probably at that point four years after my mom passed away. And I was in, I think it was my second ceremony. And the whole ceremony for me was a funeral. It was a funeral for my mom. That was my ceremony, that was my experience. And in, it, in, a, in a sort of magical thinking kind of way, I experienced as everyone was there honoring the life of my mom and in many ways honoring my father, like what the burden he has to bear at this point. And, you know, it wasn't a somber occasion. It was joyous. There was music. There was drumming. There were tears. There was deep outpourings of grief, but there was feeling and feeling held and feeling connected and celebrating in a community. And I just felt like my mom was recognized, her life was celebrated. the role that the, the position my dad is in right now was really held by the community and at the end, I just came up from this ceremony and I was like, I could do a funeral and it just felt like we don't we we miss the mark in so many ways and how we um arrive and gather and and mark in time these you know, enormous events of our lives. And I felt like now I felt satisfied that this had been properly marked. And I think about my my colleague Will Sue. He's a friend, he might he's in LA now. He has a, a thing that he says about psychedelics. He says they're not just tools for healing trauma. They're here to help make spirituality palatable to our starving Western world. And I think, you know, mm. you can you can also we can go down that path as well. Um, But I think that there's something about how in this Western medicine approach that's starved of ritual, we are worshiping at the altar of science, which is a lovely idea in many ways, like the pursuit of truth. I'm in favor. Um, But I think that we've sometimes then we feel ashamed of intuition or spirituality or seeking, and it doesn't line up with what's acceptable, which is to be rational and objective and evidence-based. And I think that these, these medicines not only bring us back to ritual, but they also give us some permission to speak. And I think that's also medicine.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. The seeking is medicine because it's again going back to something that's within, some whispers that are coming from within, right? The seeking, when we seek out ourselves. I mean, I think maybe what I'm trying to put together is that, you know, seeking, as you said, is not necessarily seeking the information outside of ourselves. I believe that that seeking is really looking to find it within, but there's so much noise in this world that we live in that it is hard to hear it. Right. And maybe one of the things you're suggesting or offering is that some of these plant medicines and the ritual around it allows us to go back and and find some of
1: that wisdom within ours. Part of the reason we don't seek is the utter lack of stillness in yes. modern life. Yes. And um, and I do like the way these medicines, they kind of autonomically floor you a lot of them. <laughs> like you have no choice but to slow down and be still. Yeah. And, and to really attune to what's coming up from within.
0: Thanks again for listening to The Healing Catalyst. If you love what you heard, please hit follow and pass it along to a friend. And if you're feeling really inspired, please rate and review so that others can find this podcast more easily. To learn more, head to avantikumarsingh.com. And to connect with me directly, find me on Instagram at avantikumarsingh. I'll be back next week and hope that you will be too. Until then, remember... With the right catalyst, you have the power to activate your own healing because healing starts within.